0: I thought that uh, we would get you moving a little bit. You seem a, a little July-ish this morning. Uh, a little July-ish, yeah. A little, a little um, you know, the Bible talks about uh, uh, singing like the saved, right? And, and uh, David uh, dances in a loincloth, uh, which a lot of us really don't want to talk about. Um, but, uh, and he says, I don't care what people think. Because I'm praising the, the Lord. And so uh, I know we're a little July-ish, but uh, we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. We are singing like the saved. We sing about things like freedom. Like, I don't know how we can sing depressingly, like, about freedom. I, I just don't fully understand that. But it's nice to be back. Uh, for you, those that don't know me, I'm, uh, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here it's my privilege to be able to share uh, this morning. Uh, as many of you know, I was ministering at uh, Camp Crossroads, which is uh, one of our, what is our denominational uh, camp up in uh, the Muskokas. It was really tough times uh, up there. Uh, and uh, we, uh, we had a really, really great time up at camp. Uh, it, was, it was busy. Uh, we did, you know, eight sermons in five days. Uh, but it was really rewarding to be able to walk through those eight sermons over five days with a, a core group of people and really start to unpack. Uh, we, I preached on the Sermon on the Mount and the Kingdom of God, and uh, it, was, it was really just a blessing for all of us. So we had a wonderful time uh, ministering at camp, and then the following week, uh, I did work on our bathroom that blew some holes in pipes and stuff like that. And so I'm just so grateful that uh, we have staff that can step in and very competently uh, continue to teach you the scriptures, and so uh, I'm just appreciative to Tamil and to Andrew for the, uh, the work that they did. So this morning, we're going to continue in the book of Philippians, and so you can open your Bibles to uh, chapter 2, we're Two chapters in, we've been, uh, I think this is week six now in Philippians. Uh, I'm going to put a disclaimer out there about the passage today. I attempted to write this sermon giving you everything that this passage speaks of. And then I realized that you would hate me more than you probably already do because we would be here an awful long time. Uh, I was I was pulling apart the different nuances in the Greek text, and and so instead of doing some of that, I'm going to give you some overarching flavors. We're actually only we're going to read right through to verse 18, but we are only uh, going to actually deal to verse 15. I'm going to just graze upon the last section because I think we're going to need to rest in the section above a little bit more uh, today. Uh, but I really need you to be willing to journey with me a little bit today because I, I have to try and get you to hear and and feel and experience how the original text actually reads in this passage. Because when we read it our English versions do a wonderful uh job at translating it, but it's it just it just doesn't give us the feel of what's actually happening, and so we're going to deal with a bunch of theological concepts. They're things that I have taught before, uh, so if, you, if you're like, oh no, he's going to talk about salvation again and start rolling your eyes, uh, that's okay because you need that context in order to really grasp what is happening here. So the Philippian church is a church that Paul loves. We've established that, I've said this before, they're, they're a diverse church, they're ma- made up of just common people, and in the earlier stages of this, we met some of the original members of the church in Philippi, and they're just everyday people. There's rich, there's poor, there's, there's regular blue-collared people, uh, there's Lydia, who's, who's a fashion designer, uh, there's kind of different ethics, ethnics, not ethics, ethnics, different types of people. Uh, that are all embedded in this church, it's really just like you and I. It's really just like us. It's a diverse church. It's, it's different uh, than, than other churches. Every church has its own identity. And Paul's letter to this church takes a very positive tone. It's his most positive letter to all the churches. He projects a feeling of joy toward this church church specifically. However, I don't know if you've caught this, but the church in Philippi is not perfect either. If it's just like us, it means it's actually quite imperfect. And so uh, there is another facet of the context of this letter that is driving the things that Paul is saying. They're just like us. They've had good times. They've had bad times. They've had their struggles. They've had their times where they talked about two services. But Paul is actually writing to them for a couple different reasons. So the first one we established was that they were sending a monetary uh, a blessing to him while he was in prison, and in prison you, you weren't fed, it wasn't like the system now, uh, and so you needed actual income to be able to survive in prison, and so the church is sending this money, and Paul wants to thank them. But there is a messenger that they have sent, a messenger whom we're going to meet next week, and so I'm not going to talk too much about him today, but a messenger that they have sent to take this money to Paul and so, of course, Paul asks, well, how's the church actually doing? Now, generally, the report was good, but they did need some guidance from their founding pastor. Because there is actually, in this church that Paul loves, that Paul uh, expresses his joy about, there is conflict arising in the church, conflict between people and possibly between the people and the leadership of the church. That never happens, right? Like We've solved all of those problems today. There's not conflict in our churches, and there's definitely never conflict between you and the leadership of the church. That's what's brewing here. Now, how do we know this? Well, there's a hint about this in the opening. Now, I grazed on this when we first opened this sermon series, but Paul's letter, he specifically opens it differently than any other letter he has written. It's the only letter that he actually addresses the overseers and the deacons. He says to God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons deacons and so we're given this hint that something is actually going on here uh, because why would Paul address this specifically not just the church as a whole but specifically the overseers and the deacons now a bunch of you automatically jump and say well they must be having problems with the overseers and the deacons because they're the only ones that are the problems or they must it must be a bad pastor it can't possibly be us let's wait and see now Paul addresses this conflict by choosing to take a positive approach rather than what I'm going to deem a first Corinthians approach. Anybody that's read for you would have found that really funny if you've ever read first Corinthians. Right, First Corinthians, he's like tearing them apart. He's constantly correcting them. And and with this church, he takes a a different approach, an approach of joy, an approach of patience, and an approach of teaching them. Addressing this conflict with a positive approach, as we move into chapter 2, Paul actually begins to teach the church in Philippi how to actually be the church. What the Bible calls the posture of the church to be in a broken, fallen world. He's addressing how to live in community with unity and love. Now, we graze upon those things all the time. We're unified because we all agree. That's not necessarily unity. We love one another, but yet we grumble. We're going to deal with that today. That's not loving. And so we we graze over these words, but we don't actually dig into what they really mean for the life of the church. And so he connects conflict with posture. That's important. I want you to remember that. Conflict with posture. They're connected. Now in the passage that Tamil spoke on, Paul lays the foundation of how a Christian community should actually interact with one another. In other words, Paul is teaching them and us the posture that we must take in order to actually be the church today now the beginning of this teaching is rooted tamil touched on not touched on this she dug right into it is rooted in humility the kind of humility that only the grace of god can produce in us most of the time, the humility that we produce is false humility. It's actually full of self-centeredness, and it's not humble at all. This is the kind of humility that only the grace of God can produce in us through the working of his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, in the original writing of this sermon, I spent about 15 minutes on that one word, mindset, because in the Greek text, that sucker is loaded. That is is such a loaded statement, the mindset as Christ Jesus, to think just like Jesus thinks. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That actually sets the stage for everything about what the church is called to be, how we are called to interact with one another. It's a huge statement, but I, maybe I'll post it online, some of the nuances uh, in that. Actually, most of you won't read it, so it'll be fine. <laughs> now Paul begins to weave through the concepts of what this mindset of Christ really is. Paul's gonna help us because we don't want to do the work, right? We don't, we don't want to read it online. We don't want to do the work. We need Paul to just lay it out for us. And so that's exactly what Paul's going to begin to do. In short, it's a humble, others-centered mindset that focuses on others rather than self. I'm going to say that again. It's a humble, others-centered mindset that focuses on others rather than self. In other words, we focus on what God wants instead of what we want. It's an easy statement to say. It's a statement I've been preaching for five years. And it's a statement that we still struggle to live because it usually transitions really into what we want. And that's what Paul is going to begin to unpack here. He focuses on Christ's humility and Christ's obedience to the Father. How, how Jesus presents for us God's character, the incarnate God in the flesh, that he is presenting to us what God is like, it's actually not super difficult to know the nature of God. Just go to Jesus. If it's outside of that nature, it's probably not God's nature. And so if you're reading scripture that way, go back to the drawing board, you're probably reading it wrong. We also don't like to hear that because we've been reading it right because that's what I think. This is the stuff that Paul's going to deal with. Now, listen to what he says. He actually says that Jesus did not take advantage for himself. Rather, he embraced his selfless service. What he did in the last passage was, uh, it was unpacked that Jesus was God in the flesh, but he did not take on his godness. He, didn't, he, he became fully human and experienced everything that we experienced, and he chose not to tap into his divineness in order to live this life that we are called as the church to live. And so what you've got to understand, folks, and I think we don't understand this in the church, you've got to understand that he had the same temptations as us, the same pressures as us. He didn't just turn on a shining light and say, oh, I'll be God now so I can get through this. He took on a posture of meekness. He took on the character of God, and he embraced selfless service. He shows us what it means to be fully human, yet with humility and obedience to the Father. It's beautiful what Jesus does. He shows us what it's actually like to live life to the fullest, to be fully human, but with humility and obedience to God. Now, because of the growing disunity in the church, Paul, in a joy-filled, loving voice, lays out the character traits that each of us are called to live with in community. In verses two, chapter two, verses twelve to eighteen, Paul completes the call to steadfastness and holy living that he began in chapter one, verse twenty-seven. He continues to stress both obedience to God and humility toward all believers. I need you to see the connection of obedience to God and humility toward others. Essentially what Paul is saying, folks, is if there's no humility toward others, there's no obedience to God. He connects things in this passage, as we're going to see, that give us deep hints into our maturity or lack thereof in faith. Let's open our Bibles, you probably have it open to chapter 2, and I want you to notice something right away. Some of your versions won't say this, and it's a shame. Therefore, well, that's just a passing word. No big deal. Okay, when you hear things like therefore, it automatically connects it to everything above. I've talked to you about our subheaders in Scripture and how our subheaders are the worst thing we ever implemented in all of scripture because it plays with your mind. This chapter two is one flow in the Greek text. It is one thought. Therefore, so he's talked about humility, and now he's connecting that and saying, this is what this is now gonna look like. Therefore, my dear friends, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. I love that the NIV just says, have always obeyed, puts a dash, and then says, not only in my presence. Some interpretations, like the New Living Translation, they take some liberties here, and they will say, being obedient to Paul, where the Greek actually leans a little bit more toward obedient to Christ through the teachings of Paul. And so there is an important connection there. So what the NIV did was just sat on the fence and said, we're just not going to make a decision about that. But now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What a verse that we have misused for years. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, do everything. He doesn't say some things. He doesn't say occasionally. He, he doesn't say, you know, when you're feeling up to it, do it this way. Literally everything. And again, the Greek nuance here is quite literally absolutely everything without grumbling or arguing. Dang. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. No, but sometimes I have the right to grumble and argue. No, do everything without grumbling and arguing. No, I have the right. No, you gave up your rights to have rights when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know that, right? Okay. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that, see that connection? So that you may become blameless and pure. Oh, wait a minute. He just connected another thing. Can you be blameless and pure when you're arguing and grumbling? No. So you can be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, so he's connecting again, then this is what will happen. You will shine among, among them like the stars in the sky. As you hold firmly to the, uh, the word of life, and then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in, or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and, serving, and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, we gotta get moving here. So there's three specific connections that, Paul draws in this passage. He connects God's work with our work. There's that word, work. Work is biblical. He connects avoiding grumbling with shining as lights in the world. They're connected. So you avoid grumbling, you become a shining light. You grumble, darkness. And he, at the end, which we're not going to deal with a lot today, connects sacrifice and rejoicing. So as as we weave through this, I need you to keep in mind the context that there's conflict brewing in this church. He's going to teach us how to not have conflict, the posture that it takes to actually live this. It's absolutely crucial to becoming the church that scripture calls us to be. Now, verses 12 to 13, Paul does three very specific things. He encourages the Philippians with how they've been following Jesus or how they've been following his instructions about Jesus. And he commends their obedience to that. And then he calls on them to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, which is where we're going to spend a ton of our time today. And then in verse 13, he brings comfort by reminding them who is actually the one doing the work in them. Now, firstly, we're going to get into some theological things, and a lot of you have heard this, but Paul is actually teaching about our sanctification in this passage. Our sanctification is our working out of salvation right here in today's context. It's the right here, the right now aspects of our salvation. Our becoming more and more like Jesus' journey, so to speak. So, so in order to understand this, we've got to dive into an understanding about salvation itself, which is deeply, deeply misunderstood and miscommunicated in the church. And so I'm going to walk you through something very, very quick. Uh, theologically, now I'm a theology geek, so I get all excited during all this. You're going to be like, what is going on? This actually completely shapes how you live your faith. It's that important. Okay, so it's not, it's not actually boring stuff. This completely shapes the type of Christian that you become. Understanding salvation. There's three aspects, three theological aspects of salvation. There's justification, which is, which is the past. You've been justified. There's sanctification, which is the present, which is what Paul's going to dig into today. And there's glorification, which is the future the evangelical strain of the church has placed a huge focus on justification and glorification, essentially eliminating the present aspects of salvation. So most of the way that most of you look at salvation is I'm justified, God saved me. I'm justified by faith alone. We quote Martin Luther. By faith alone, I'm saved. And that means I get to go to heaven. This is awesome. I get to go somewhere in the future, but I can be an idiot right here, right now. Or I can be an idiot in progress. That's a lot of the language that we use, right? In other words, I can grumble, I can argue, because I have the right to do that because I'm justified and I'm going to be glorified someday. The problem is, is most of Scripture actually deals with our sanctification not our justification or our glorification. And it's, it's actually a huge theological error with massive repercussions reper, Yep. <laughs> to how we present the good news. It's huge. You see, if you present the good news as a past and a future thing, that's not good news to me. It might be to some... But it sure isn't to me, because I want to know what I'm called to live right here, right now. Now, Paul is not speaking... Now, I need you to listen really closely as I weave us through this. He's not speaking about salvation here as synonymous to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Additionally, Paul does not see justification only as a past event, but also as a future reference. We see this in Romans 2, verse 13, Romans 8, verse 33, Galatians 5, 4 to 5, just as a few examples. I saw you're all writing those down. Here is the problem with only looking at salvation as past and future. Paul also speaks of God judging believers based on their works. Now, we love to argue about this. I'm not preaching a works-based faith. I'll get into that. But we find this in Romans 14, 10 to 12, 1 Corinthians 3.15, 2 Corinthians 5.10, just to name a few. But he's not, he's not judging our ticket to heaven. That's justification, you receive your glorification, yippee. That's great. But there is an important connection to faith and works in Scripture often the way that you'll hear it phrased in Scripture is the word fruitfulness. So basically, the question that we can ask is, where is the fruit? Where is the evidence of salvation, of justification? Now, uh, justification by faith alone is completely true. I have no problem with Martin Luther. But working out our salvation as Paul speaks of in this passage, expands on this statement. Alex, Alistair McGrath is a, uh, a brilliant theologian uh, from England, and he says this. He says, believers are justified by faith and judged by its fruit. In today's passage, Paul looks at the part of salvation that happens once the believer steps through the window of faith and begins to live in community with other Christians. Now, look at it like this very simple way. There is a vertical aspect of our salvation, us and God. But there is a horizontal aspect of our salvation as well, and that's us together. Now, this horizontal aspect is actually the tone of the original Greek. He's not talking about our relationship with us and God, although that relationship drives what your horizontal relationship will look like. So again, understanding salvation, you and God, then connects how you're going to live your horizontal aspects of salvation, your sanctification. In this passage, though, that's what Paul is dealing with, our horizontal, how we interact with one another as the church. So here's the actual problem. Often we view salvation as a prayer we pray on a specific moment when one gives their life to Jesus and gets saved. Many see this moment as personal and as individual, except that it's not in Scripture. The Bible never speaks of that whatsoever but that's how we have defined salvation. It's it's individual. It's personal. I'm going to work out my salvation between me and God, and it's not your business. It's just between me and God. The problem is, is that isn't biblical. That's not how the Bible teaches about our salvation. That's only justification. You see how embedded, how indoctrinated we've been with this thinking about salvation and salvation always about this personal relationship with Jesus. But God saves us within the context of community for community. It's important to understand that. It's it's the biggest mistake or misunderstanding that we make about salvation. We think that it's all about us and our personal relationship with Jesus. However, salvation is actually about helping others. It's about helping other souls. God desires that we work out our salvation for the benefit of others, not our benefit. You see how, in, especially in the Western world, actually very specifically in the Western world, we've made salvation about me and what I receive. The problem is that's not the salvation that Jesus Christ presents. This is the truth that's guiding Paul in these passages. In other words, working out our salvation is another way of saying, live in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. He's addressing our sanctification and and today our aspect of salvation, our life in the Spirit, how we live as a community, is directly connected to our salvation. Working it out. The the justification, the piece we focus on so much, you're saved, you're going to heaven, that's fine. Wonderful. But that's not it. Working that out each and every day in community is actually where God has placed us right here and right now. Now, to work out one's salvation really is actually quite simple. Follow the examples of Christ in everything. Now, with Paul's consistent emphasis on unity of the church, you hear that language from Paul. That helps us put this in context, and it compels us to see that Paul's call to work out your salvation has a church communal will in reference to it. It's actually, this passage, folks, is a call to restore harmony in the church by serving others. Remember this context. Paul's teaching about how to live as the church, how to not have conflict. He's not speaking individually. He is speaking communal in this passage. So working out our salvation with fear and trembling takes a community effort So anybody that's decided that it's a Lone Ranger faith and that God has led you there is completely disconnected with how Scripture teaches about salvation. In other words, you can't turn on the body of Christ and say that you're serving Christ. You can't disconnect from the head and say that you're still part of the body from a distance. Philippians 2, verse 13, he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. God is at work in us at the deepest levels. God is working in us to bring our salvation to completion. And In essence, you could write this down, we work because God works. If God's not working, we don't work. And I don't mean like going down to the local factory and working. That's biblical too. But God has to be working in us in order for us to work. When God's not working in us, it will not work. This is communal. If we're not asking what does God want, if we're constantly focusing on what we want, God is not working in us, and it won't work. You see this all the time, don't you? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Listen to what he's saying. 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was without no effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It's God working in us that transforms us. Our salvation is not something that is completely in our hands. It's not all us. God working in us is what helps bring unity, the unity that Paul speaks about. In other words, God is working in each of us Each of us make up the body of Christ. Therefore, each of us play a role in how the body of Christ functions, how the body follows the leading of the head, which is Jesus. This is all rooted in God working in us. As a community, not as individuals, the body with many parts and those parts can't be separated or we're missing pieces of who we are as a whole. We lack wholeness. What's our vision statement as a church? Restoring wholeness through Jesus Christ. You see, we lack wholeness when we lack God working in us. So, if you're a gray chair sitter, or what I like to call a pew sitter, someone who refuses to get involved in the life of the church, maybe because you've been hurt or, or maybe because uh, you just don't have time or whatever it may be, if you are refusing to get involved in the life of the church, I want to challenge you to begin the process of working out your salvation because you're currently not. It's communal in nature and you can't withdraw from the community because you don't like it. What does that sound like? That's a me-centered theology, not a Christ-centered theology. So I want to challenge you to start working out your salvation in community. God works in us and in our community to draw us closer to him. That's how scripture teaches this. Now, Paul gets really practical here. we got to get moving. He gives us an example of how community can break down, and it's directly connected to our attitudes. Go figure. Our attitudes are part of working out our salvation. They're part of our sanctification. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. (laughs) Oh, could I show you emails? Anyway, um, working out our salvation, folks, is directly connected to how we interact with one another. Remember the context, right? I press, I've been pushing that for five years. Remember the context of what Paul's dealing with and talking about here. Last week, Tamil taught about humility and the therefore connects it to that. Humility in community, Paul says, is the only way to become like Jesus. This means that we should not grumble or argue. They're both postures of attitude. And he's calling us to an attitude that shows maturity, but we often live in an attitude that lacks maturity in Christ. Paul says that if you grumble, complain, gossip, or argue in community about the leaders, about one another, you're creating conflict and disunity. He calls us to do everything without grumbling, and then he says, so that. So what does it produce? If we eliminate the posture of the me-centered attitude, what does it actually create? He says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's recognizing that this isn't simple because we have a lot of temptations that surround us. But then he says, what will happen? If you take this posture of actually uh, having the mind of Christ and interacting with one another in respectful ways rather than all about me ways, what happens? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Oh my goodness, the church would be noticed to be different instead of just like the world who argues and grumbles. Paul calls the church to a posture of unity based on living our lives, folks, in the spirit, meaning God is at work in us, yet our sinful nature struggles to let go of our selfish ambition. That's the way scripture describes it. Selfishness is heightened when you are absent of community. I'm gonna say that again. Selfishness is heightened when you're in absence of community. The posture of community determines our openness to God working in us. We shouldn't grumble, gossip, and fight because the world around us does a really good job at all of that. Instead, we unify under the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And folks, I need you to understand this is only, the only way we can do this is to have God working in us through His Spirit. We are not capable as broken, fallen human beings to possibly have a posture of anything but self-centeredness. We've shaped salvation, our theology that we preach about salvation to be all about us instead of others. But there's always this communal feel in the New Testament, especially coming from Paul. Community, community. Matters and it determines our openness to God working in us and through us. And we need the Spirit working in us and we need to submit to the Holy Spirit. You've got to let go of control, which control, I think, is the root, the nature of sin. And we're all control freaks because we're all sinners. But our world says control is competency. But Jesus says, Give me control, and then you'll be more competent than you've ever been. But we fight that, and instead we embrace as the church the posture of the world, what Paul calls a crooked generation that complains all the time. It traps us folks into selfishness, and it draws us closer to the brokenness of the world and further away from God. Last Sunday, I didn't go to church. Yeah, four times a year I get to skip church. If I took your attendance, I guess I'm I'm still probably doing better than you are. Now I am paid to be here, so we could kind of weigh those things out. It certainly doesn't elevate me above you. Why I'm going to bring this up, it's not in my notes, but I think it's important for you to hear. uh, I've I've been working at losing weight. I don't know if you noticed, but I was slightly chubby and uh, not feeling the greatest. And so I wanted wanted to work on my weight. So I was going out for a run. So at 10 o'clock when your service started, I went for a run and I ran by here. Uh, And then I went uh, down the road and I went to the Lynn Valley Trail. And from my house, like basically from around this area to the Lynn Valley Trail, I counted eight people out mowing their lawns. One I stopped to interact with. And the roads were crazy busy. And it was really, uh, I had this like overwhelming feeling of sadness. Because here we are, sitting comfortably in the air conditioning, fighting over the air conditioning. We do that too. And more people don't know anything about what we're doing out there, and we just ignore it. So I stopped and I talked to one guy uh, right down the road, big massive house with a big wall because I found it interesting that he built a wall. And I, I chatted with him for a little while and I said, you know, your water and your lawn, your lawn's beautiful. Will you ever I used to attend church. Well, how come you don't attend church anymore? Why would I do that? It's just full of judging. It's just full of hypocrites. And you know what I said to him? You're right. It is, but when the church someday begins to let God work in us and submits to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, all of that's going to change. And I believe that that time is here and that God is beginning a weeding process. He's sending the grumblers out and the pastors are holding the door. (laughs) Think about our culture. Our culture said, oh no, we don't ever want anybody to leave. We want everybody to hear about Jesus and we want everybody to experience Jesus Christ when they interact with us in this place and outside of this place. And when they get something different, I'm okay with you leaving. I need the seats anyway. (laughs) The the biggest church in Canada, the Meeting House, every year preaches that exact sermon. If you're not going to engage in the life of this community, go find another community. In our culture, we're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Scripturally speaking, folks, it's bang on. Because if we're going to do life together and we're going to be asking, what does God want? We have to take that posture of submitting that way. And when there's others amongst us that insist on arguing and grumbling and always having it their way, it just corrupts the process. And so what we do as Christians is we pray for those people. We pray that they'll stay and that they'll be impacted by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we don't hold on so tight to the brokenness. Sometimes we've got to let it go. Paul actually deals with that in Scripture as well. We just don't grasp it in our culture. It was a big deal to be excommunicated from their community back in Paul's day. Today, it's no big deal. You just find a new place to cause problems. <laughs> so it's big time true. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Folks, I'm not saying this to be harsh, but listen to what Paul says in Deuteronomy. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm teaching the passage to you. In Deuteronomy, this is where Paul builds this from. He says they are corrupt and not his children, to their shame they are warped and crooked generation. Guess who he's talking about? The Israelites. He also links it to Daniel 12:3, and he says those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The nation of Israel, if you've ever read scripture, the nation of Israel was always grumbling. And not only were they always grumbling, but they were constantly turning on Moses and Aaron. So they would experience things like the parting of the sea, a massive miracle, a working of God, and they'd be like, oh, This is amazing. And they'd be like, Moses is the best leader we've ever had. This is amazing. Look at what God did. Let's have a big party. And then three days later, they're like, let's kill Moses. I can't believe he led us in this direction. That's what Paul's pulling from here. He's weaving the Philippians' story into Israel's story, calling them to learn from past generations and to not repeat what they did. But what I see in my assessment is generation after generation, repeat after repeat. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, and we're going to wrap up with this. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters. This is a great way to open. In other words, they are ignorant at the moment. And I don't want you to be ignorant, and so I need to teach you this thing, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, that's the presence of God, and that they all passed through the sea. And so what he's saying is, is that our ancestors deeply experienced God in moments of their lives. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. This is where he goes in this passage about the pouring of the drink, which I can't get into too much today. Uh, For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Remember Aaron hit the rock? Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Isn't that interesting? Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is Israel's story. Now, these things, Paul says, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, listen, I want you to, I'll help you point out what's happening here. We should not commit sexual immorality. Everybody's like, I know. Like, I get that. Actually, it's the biggest hotbed issue in the church in a lot of ways. As some of them did. So that was a reality. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Folks, in this passage, I want you to see a connection that's happening here. Grumbling and sexual immorality, same thing. Same thing in scripture. Grumbling and sexual immorality are the same in God's eyes. Testing Christ. Grumbling being sexually immoral, all the same. How many people have sat at small group and grumbled? Yeah, be honest. That's no different than going out and cheating on your wife. But in our culture, we make it different. But that's not what this passage is teaching us. Don't be like our ancestors is what he's saying. He said, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, here's one of the most misquoted passages in all of scripture. Uh, Where was I? If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you Except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. A lot of people say, God will never give me more than I can bear. The Bible does not say that anywhere. What it says is, is that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. We're all tempted to sin and we all fall into it. But God is faithful and he'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, that's where we tend to stop, but listen to what it says. But when you are tempted, because you will be, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There it is. It's not about him giving you more than you can bear or not. It's about the reality of him giving you a way out of your temptation. So we might be tempted to grumble, we might be tempted to complain, but the Holy Spirit living in us always gives us option A, which is to be like Christ. And he gives us all the empowerment we need to live like Jesus did. To be shining stars in a dark, broken world. Paul challenges the church to take a posture of humility toward one another, and he says this is the only way that we're going to be different than the world. We're called to submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, allowing his spirit to work in us. We take a Christ-like communal posture of love, unity, and grace, and then we shine like stars in the sky. We're a noticeably different community than the rest of the world. And so simple decisions like, do we go to two services or not? I'm going to be preaching some vision around some of that in the not-too-distant future after some decisions are made. And we've deeply appreciated your feedback. It's actually been amazing. Um, This is about taking a posture or a mindset of Christ. It's not about what we want. It's about what God wants, and what God wants is often uncomfortable. But we have to take a posture of unity and love and give it time. The posture we take is working out our salvation or not? Do we take a posture of humility, grace, and love and compassion towards others and we begin the process of working out our salvation? Or do we grumble about stuff, one another? It's a choice that we have to make. It's actually a tipping point that we are at as a church right now. We're going to find out what posture we take. Here's the big idea. The worship team can join me. The church is called to work out their salvation by the power of God, but God's enabling grace and to shine like stars in a dark world. This can only be done in community through the power and presence of the Spirit in our lives. Folks, embrace the messiness of who we are. Embrace that our community is not perfect. Embrace that your leadership is not perfect. But trust that God is working in us for the betterment of his purposes so that we can be the church that he's called us to be. And I don't just mean us as a body. I mean the church. Every church in town, every church across seas, every church in other cities. If we would just begin to live this posture, we would be different than the world. If we began to sing like the saved, if we began to actually truly understand what being freed, it's, it's almost like we, we get released from prison and we know we did it, like we know we committed murder. But somehow a loophole happens and we get released anyway, and we're standing at the gate and we keep turning back and saying, like, I, I need to stay in prison, And God says, no, go, and pushes us out. And then we like go and sit on the stump out front of the prison, just waiting to go back in. That's often our posture in worship. I'm free. You're sitting on a stump waiting to go back to prison. You're free. We'll get into that another day.